Welcome to the Mama Bear Apologetics Podcast. A podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother. And by roar, we mean recognize the message, offer discernment, argue for a healthier approach, and reinforce these ideas with your kids. Unless you want to growl around your house. I mean, that's cool too. <laughs> You're like, check it. We keep it reals. <laughs> that's so bad. You're awesome. Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support. It's time to rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Hey there, Mama Bears. Welcome to another podcast with Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Amy Davison, and I am so excited that you are with us because this is just awesome fellowship time that we get to have together growing in our knowledge of Christ. Now, we have all had our wonderful Easter services, which was such a huge blessing. And so often when it comes to apologetics, we, there's a lot of effort put into preparing us and helping our kiddos understand the resurrection before Easter. But I think there's a lot of benefits too to continuing the conversation past Easter, because so often with our kiddos, they, they get really caught up in the jelly beans and the chocolate bunnies and the nice outfits and going out for brunch. And it's just great when we can have all of that fun, but still reorient and refocus back toward Christ, which is what we're doing with this great podcast series in discussing the importance, the relevance, and the historicity of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Now we at Mama Bear, we are so blessed to have an amazing speaker with us for this whole series. Her name is Dr. Tricia Scribner. And if you didn't catch our very first podcast on the importance of the resurrection, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that because her and Hillary, they go over just the great, great points of why the resurrection is integral to Christianity, uh, more so than any miracle in the gospel uh, and in the Bible in and of itself. It's fantastic. And so definitely go back to there. But if you're just joining us, don't worry, because Trisha, I would love for you to tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and just so we can get to know you as a person. Well, it's so good to be here with you, Amy, and I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today with the mama bears and grandmama bears. And to speak of grandmama bears is important to me because I am a grandmama bear, and I can't even say it. I get too many M's in there, but I have 10 grandchildren, and so I'm a nana to 10 grandkids, and that's one of the most important things about me. I didn't have all of this information when I was raising my three girls. Actually, at the time, I was a, a registered nurse, went on and got my master's, was certified as a family nurse practitioner. So I thought that's what I would be doing for the rest of my life, but the Lord had other plans. And I began having babies. I eventually, as much as I love nursing, left nursing and went into seminary. And in seminary, I fell in love with apologetics and finding out all the reasons that we have the ample, overwhelming evidence for the truth claims of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures, and that he died a substitutionary death on our behalf and our place, paid for our sins because he was both man and God 100%, and then was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And because he is resurrected, we have the same hope 
that this is going to happen to us as well, this glorified body to come. And so I went into seminary and kept going through seminary and just finished my last bit of, of work in seminary and and back in ministry, glad to be there. I've written an apologetics book for women called Life Givers Apologetics. You'll see it on the bookcase behind me. And it's available at impactapologetics.com along with a study guide. So that's my first ever to, to help women get a handle on the fundamentals of our Christian faith and good reasons for believing them. So thanks so much for inviting me. Ah, oh, that is fantastic. Yes. Love your heart. And yeah, it's, it's awesome when you can go to seminary and yeah, you discover apologetics. It's like, yes, this is awesome. <laughs> so we are so glad to have you here on the podcast. And like I said before, with you and Hillary, you guys had talked about the importance of the resurrection. And now we're shifting to the historicity, meaning the yeah. historical likelihood that this did actually occur. Right. And this can be a bit of a tension point, especially for skeptics, because again, it is highly supernatural. You do not have people rising from the dead on a regular occurrence. It is just, it's mind blowing. And so the goal of looking at the historicity of the resurrection is again, to bring it down to likely uh, things that we can all agree on. And by meaning all, I meaning whether you are a, a skeptic, a naturalist, atheist, agnostics, these are the points that everybody can agree with. And uh, it's to help open doors for conversation. And one of the people who sort of yeah. spearheaded this movement, uh, not really movement, but just this train of thought was Gary Habermas. And so he yeah. presented something that is called the minimal facts discussion. So Tricia, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the minimal facts discussion? Yes, when Dr. Habermas did his research, he was looking to find what are some of the facts that virtually all scholars agree on. And in that, that provides us a, a legitimate method for entering into conversation, even with skeptics. So that's really cool. Others have done work in this area, Michael Lacona, and you have uh, mentioned some. I know Jay Warner Wallace has written about it. But but what Habermas wanted to do is get past this merry-go-round of arguing among scholars which historical events surrounding Jesus' death do we all agree on. And so he decided to set, establish the minimal facts, the basic ones, and he has both short lists of four or five, and then a longer list of 12 and even more than that. And we also have a, a variety of scholars writing about this now. And so some of their lists do vary uh, a little bit. So we're going to derive our list and bring you some that we pulled from various scholars uh, that may differ with another scholar. And you can do your own research and develop the what you believe are the strongest arguments. So yeah. Yeah. They're, they're really helpful. And yeah, like, like Trisha said, some of these do vary a little bit. Um, at like Jay Warner Wallace, he, he has slightly different ones compared to Habermas, but either way, these are, these are just easy ones that everybody, regardless of, of your faith background can discuss and come around, but there had to be a bit of criteria on how these were going to be agreed upon. And there were two things that were settled on is one is that it must be confirmed by several strong and independent arguments. So again, these had to be reasonable. They had to be rational and they weren't just reasonable from a naturalistic perspective. They had to be reasonable from within scripture too. These were also supported through extra biblical sources and historians 
And most of these sources and historians, they were not scripture because they say, well, you can't really trust it because again, the people who wrote it believed in God. So therefore they are suspect. And so they will put this as sources. And so these sources are great. They're not as many as what's in scripture. We have thousands upon thousands within scripture. These sources are just uh, a few, but they are, they don't take away from scripture they contribute to it. And actually scripture expands upon all of these. So they are rooted by ancient historians such as Josephus, Tacitus, whom we shall meet here shortly. And they are also supported by archeological discoveries. And that's that's huge. We're, uh, Trish is gonna talk a little more about archeology, span but what's fantastic is archeological discoveries that have been made have backed up the Bible to the extent that archeologists actually bring Bibles with them because they help them make discoveries. Even Josephus's writings have been used by archeologists just to be able to discover tombs and cities. It's just fantastic, the richness and the historical accuracy that are found within these documents. So that's the first one is it has to be confirmed by several strong and independent arguments. And the second one is that it's generally accepted by the majority of biblical, meaning uh, both believing and secular scholars and historians. So this is just important, again, to have that common ground between people who are Christians and those that aren't. Uh, they are generally accepted for the most part with these uh, with these basic minimal facts. So there, there can range between four and 12. Um, it really depends on, on which ones are, are picking and which ones they like more. So, but they are accepted. It's important uh, that they have the common ground within the history, um, within historians and that they are based in history. They don't require belief and affirmation in the divine or supernatural events. That's really what makes it that common ground is, again, you don't have to affirm divinity to agree that these things did occur. And if, especially if you've got a skeptic within the family, this is something easily that you guys can discuss. And they are mm -hmm. awesome, necessary sounding, our starting points for conversation. They give everybody this firm foundation from which you can then turn back and ask, okay, what is the most reasonable explanation for these facts? So Trisha, we have covered these two great points about that it is generally accepted by the scholars and it has to be supported by the arguments. And let's bring it back to our first pod or your first podcast, because you discussed with Hillary about how this is so important. And why is that so? We just need to remember, as we covered in the first part podcast, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central assertion of Christianity. And it's what distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions is that Jesus Christ, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul said, I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So Jesus' crucifixion, his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, most importantly, without which uh, there would be no Christianity. The resurrection is central to everything that we argue for. If you don't believe in the resurrection, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. And so this is what distinguishes us. And it sounds like a fantastical claim because this is not the natural pattern that occurs. But we do have several minimal facts that Amy's going to share with you now that support that Jesus really did die, really was buried, and really rose from the dead. 
All right, so let's kick off these minimal facts. So we're only going to go through four. Again, if you want to look up uh, Dr. Hazen at Habermas, they have more than just these four, but we're just going to cover these um, for today because these are easy to remember. They're great discussion points to have with your kiddos. And so let's launch right in. The very first minimal fact that is generally conceded by all sides is that Jesus was crucified and buried. So again, we have this within the wealth of thousands upon thousands of biblical documents, but I do want to highlight a little bit of the extra biblical sources because oftentimes with skeptics, that's what they defer to. So what's important to remember though, is while these are often conceded to as like, oh, these are the best ones. These are the ones we should go to because they weren't tied to the vote or to the direct apostles that were right there. The problem is with these ones, they often were written later which isn't necessarily a problem. Again, we do have historical accounts that come later, but that's often what the goal is, is to find the earliest source document, which is scripture. And so these often do come later and there aren't as many copies as the original New Testament documents, but that's okay. So what we're going to look at right now, the first one is the Talmud. So this is found in the Babylonian Talmud 43a. It actually confirms the crucifixion. It says at one point that a herald had cried out, he's going to be stoned because he practiced sorcery, but he was later hanged on Passover Eve. So, and we know that the Jews often accused Jesus of practicing sorcery. That's where they thought he got his power. It couldn't have been from God. So this is an interesting addition through the Talmud saying, okay, they thought that he was a sorcerer and he, and originally this herald thought that he was going to be stoned, but he was hanged, which is a euphemism for being crucified on Passover Eve. Then we have Tacitus. He was born in 56 AD, so after the crucifixion of Christ. He was a first century Roman historian, and often among modern historians, he's actually considered the greatest Roman historian. So his writings are, are well-respected. And what he said in his writing is, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procreator, pro excuse me for my pronunciation, of Judea in the reigning of Tiberius. So again, very specific detail. We have crisis. The founder of the name was put to death, who he was put to death by, and who he was uh, in charge of in Judea during the reigning of Tiberius. Slightly uh, earlier, we have Josephus. He was actually born 37 AD. So shortly after the crucifixion of Christ, we have Josephus. He was a Roman Jewish historian. And Josephus has a little bit of baggage here. He was actually considered a traitor among the Jews. Uh, he did report on a lot of Roman history. He was a military leader. So he was, he was looking back into ancient Judea. And again, archaeologists used a lot of Josephus' writings to be able to make modern discoveries. Now, Josephus, with this passage that we're going to be made, it is known that later historians actually inputted a little bit of a clip here who says, who was the Christ? That was added later. So some people have said, okay, well, you can't trust Josephus's account on who Christ was because of this later edition. But no, as Jay Warner Wallace points out in Cold Case Christianity, that's just what's considered an artifact. That's actually not problematic. The fact that we have copies of his writings, we're able to look at the two and figure out, okay, wait, this was a later edition. This is what he actually actually said. So this quote that I'm about to read to you is what was he what he actually said. It says at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus and his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous and many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And the last one here I want to I want to share with you is Mara Bara uh, oh help me out Trisha uh Ser Serpian is it, am I pronouncing? Maybe Serapion. 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 
Man, if you're looking for baby names, lots of great (laughs) suggestions. (laughs) So this was in 73 AD. This was actually a letter that he was writing to his son. And he was a bit, he was complaining about these three wise men who were killed. And the three wise men that he complained about as dying was the murder of Socrates, the burning of Pythagoras, and the execution of the wise king of the Jews. Now, this king of the Jews is very telling. That was a very, very direct statement. That was not applied to random people. This was very specific, and that is direct reference to Jesus. So not only do we have thousands of accounts of the death and crucifixion of Jesus, we do have extra biblical sources from Roman and Jewish historians talking about the death and resurrect or the crucifixion of Christ. And this is important is because even today, there are still people who say, well, Jesus wasn't actually crucified. We don't have evidence. And no, we do. We have lots of documents that claim that he did die uh, from people who would have gained nothing from affirming the contrary. So it is just, these are just great sources that we can look at that were written within the lifetime of the apostles who were witnesses to it. They went to the original sources and here we have evidence that yes, he did die in the crucifixion. So Trisha, let's get to some fun stuff. You have got some great evidence within archaeology. Just lay that on us. Yeah, this is sort of corroborating evidence. In other words, the evidence I'm about to share with you, it is its purpose is not to prove the claims of the New Testament, but it is to show consistency with biblical assertion. So, for instance, if uh, Pilate really didn't exist and the scriptures say that he was the procurator of Judea and he was part of Jesus' trial, then that couldn't be true if he never existed or he existed 200 years after. So this corroborating evidence is not central, but I think kids are going to love it. I love looking up all the information and seeing the pictures, which you can go on the internet and easily find of these archeological finds and then do projects with your kids to help them to learn this. I'm just going to share three archeological finds that support Jesus' death burial uh, and the people that were surrounding that event at the time. The first one is the pilot inscription. A few years ago, my husband and I traveled to Israel. A lot of you probably have too. We all want to go to Israel. It's overwhelming when you're there. You wish you could come back and do a do-over because it's just so much information. It's hard to remember. But at Caesarea Maritima was a location different from the other Caesarea Philippi, but this location was a harbor, an artificial harbor that Herod built, and it was magnificent. And so in 1961, Italian archaeologists excavated the ancient Roman amphitheater in that area. And I've, I've sat in that amphitheater. They unearthed a piece of limestone that was inscribed with a dedication to Tiberius Caesar. And it was from, quote, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Now, this confirms that Pilate was the prefect of Judea or procurator during the time that Christ was crucified. And so this provides us corroborating evidence that this man really existed, that he was a leader, and that the timing of the claims of the gospel do line up while he was serving in that role historically. Pilate inscription. And you can see it is now housed at the Israel Museum, but it was found at Caesarea Maritima. The second one is Caiaphas's ossuary. Now, 
Caiaphas was one of the high priests along with his father-in-law, uh, Annas, uh, served in that role at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And, and Caiaphas was one of the leaders plotting to kill Jesus Christ after he raised Lazarus from the dead, because you're not supposed to do things like that. And so he plotted to kill Jesus Christ and was part of the, the trial of the Lord. And he was a significant leader at that time. Now, um, it has been found that there was a, a custom of Jews that they would bury their dead and then a year later would dig up the bones after all the flesh had rotted away and there was just bones and put, it, put them in a box. And sometimes they would put into this box called an ossuary, multiple bones, skeletons of multiple family members whom they loved. And the more ornate the box, the more likely this is someone of high level importance. And a box with uh, Caiaphas's bones has been found and verified as probably the Joseph Caiaphas, since Caiaphas was the family name, and Josephus tells us that this high priest's first name was Joseph. This box has been found with his name on it. And you can go online and see this box with the engraving on it that show that this is most likely Joseph Caiaphas of the Caiaphas fame of the Gospels. And who plotted to kill Jesus Christ and was part of his trial um, and interrogation. The third find is an amazing one from the first century in Palestine. Uh, the first century archaeologist, uh, Vasilios Saveras, Saveras, I think is how you pronounce it, says that thousands of people were crucified in Palestine during the first century. After the 1967 Six-Day War in Israel, during a construction project, the remains of a crucifixion literally turned up. They found it. And it includes an ankle bone that you can see online. It's still attached to a tiny piece of wood. And you'll see through that ankle area a, a nail. Now, a lot of these didn't survive for us to find because they were taken as amulets. Sometimes the nails were removed and reused over and over again. So this is an amazing find. So we have three corroborating evidences from archaeology that you can look up online, the pilot inscription, you can look up Caiaphas's ossuary, and you can look up the crucifixion bone from first century Palestine. Yeah. And this might be great pro projects for you to do. For instance, how about making an ossuary uh, with, you know, uh, cardboard or something with your kids and, and show them how to put the bones that you make out of cardboard in there and what it might have been, been like. So this is an exciting, these are exciting finds that support our claims that Jesus Christ was crucified and buried. Now that's our first minimal fact. We have three more, Amy, that you're going to share with us. Yeah. So the, our next one, so, and I, I love archaeology, so I'm so excited that you shared those. And one of the things, Trisha, that I thought was so neat in looking at the images, especially of the crucifixion, is because when when I think of crucifixion, I would think, oh my gosh, this, this had to have broken bones. But there's actually, and we'll include this within the links, is you can actually see the ankle bone where the hole is, it, it's bored all the way through and the ankle didn't break. I mean, it's, it's excruciating to look at. Um, yeah. and, and, but yeah. 
especially, and it, th this might sound a, a little morbid, but like boys are kind of into the gruesome details and it, it just, yes. it does it. it, it it's wild that this, that this actually occurred. It's, it's tragic, but it, it does. It's important to, to know how these things happened. And so, yeah, hop on there and look, uh, with your kiddos, explain it. Ossuary, the ossuary of Caiaphas is beautiful. And so not only, you know, you suggested cardboard, which is fantastic. Also, if you've got kiddos who love Minecraft, man, hop on Minecraft, they can get their little characters and they could build this great ornate ossuary. Um, that would just be awesome. Uh, definitely, if your kiddos make something or you and your family do something like that, just like what we did with our uh, quality quarantine videos, snap a picture, put it on Facebook or Instagram. We would love to see it. Um, so some of the other evidence that we have, of, we've got our, our four minimal facts. So the first one was crucifixion. The second was that he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Now, some have suggested that perhaps the reason the tomb appeared empty was because the disciples went to the wrong tomb. It was just a simple mistake right? Not exactly. The earliest and best attested facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus involve Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. They saw where Jesus was going to be buried. Mm -hmm. Joseph of Arimathea himself was a member of the Jewish court and the location of the tomb was very well known. Not only that, you had Roman guards that were stationed out front and there was actually a seal that was placed upon this tomb. There was no missing this. They knew where it was. They knew who was going to be there as well to where if they walked, even if they walked up to the wrong tomb they would have realized it instantly for one there wasn't a, a roman crowd there and two there wasn't the soldiers there wasn't the seal so it would have been very easy to pick off so of course the uh he was buried in joseph of arimathea's tomb challenges have been raised but those are quite easily debunked it is uh this fact about where the tomb was located it is accounted for in the earliest gospel which is mark and it is also corroborated by matthew john and paul in first corinthians the third is, and this one is actually the one when we were looking at the list here is, is some will have this as their top four minimal facts. Some won't. Grutais does. So that's why I'm going to mention it. And this is the fact that the tomb was empty. There was nobody there. Now, early Jewish reasoning, and you'll see this within the Talmud, is they believe that the disciples stole the body. That was, that was the belief is, well, they must have stolen it. Um, but this is problematic because for one to touch a dead body would have made you unclean. And especially right before the Passover, that would not have been something they would have done. And not only that, they weren't there. They fled. They were in hiding because they thought they were going to be next. And so they were not there. So the stealing of the body would not have happened. Not only that, they would have had to overcome two very well-trained Roman guards who had not only their jobs to, or to preserve, but also the, their own lives and potentially the lives of their families. It's not like today to where if you mess up with work, maybe your boss will yell at you or you'll get written up or something. Now, if you messed up at that work, you could actually end up dead. So they were highly motivated to protect this body. It's also important for this tomb to be empty because, you know, that's what makes the resurrection possible. And if the Jews had wanted to stop this Christian movement, all they would have to do is turn up the body. You turn up the body, you stop the movement. Unfortunately, the body was never found. And, you know, sometimes this whole stealing the body thing too. Well, the thing is, is they didn't have refrigeration back then. So a decomposing body, it's very nasty and messy very quickly. Trisha's a nurse. She, she probably has some experience in this to where this would not have been easily done. Plus the smell as well. It would have been highly complicated. It was also common back then for Jews, like what we had just discussed, to where if somebody had died, they intended to wait and put these bones within the ossuary as preparation for the future resurrection. But they didn't do this with Jesus's body. 
And not only that, we see that the disciples believed that they had seen the resurrected Jesus, which brings us to our point number four, is this one, again, has a little bit of variation. Uh, sometimes the fourth point is pointed back to being the growth of the early church. Other times it's referred to as the disciples' transformation as well as the affirmation of post-mortem experiences. And this is worth noting, is that the disciples went basically from wimps to being completely bold to the point that they were willing to lay their lives down for the statement that, yes, Jesus did rise. We saw him, we spoke with him, we ate with him, we touched him. And so this is important to note because, again, people don't go from being wimps to being on fire for Christ for something they know is a lie. And so it's off. That's even one that's even challenged is, well, people die for lies all the time. You're absolutely right. They do, but it's not because they think it's a lie. It's because they think it's true. So there's a difference there. Not only that, the church exploded under immense persecution. And we have 12 appearances in referencing to the postmortem appearances. We have 12 appearances over 40 days to, or excuse me, over 40 days to over 500 people. It's fantastic. Um, just the amount of, of witnesses that were involved in the resurrection of Christ, the growth of the church that happened under immense persecution and the disciples' transformation, the fact that what would cause them to go from hiding and cowering in a locked upper room to being bold and on fire in the temple courts, preaching the name of Christ. The most logical explanation, it would seem, would be that they actually saw the resurrected Jesus. So this brings us, Mama and Papa Bears, to our practical application. With this information, those four points that we just made, this brings us to our question that has to be asked. What is the most reasonable explanation? What this requires is an unbiased look at all of the evidence, not just the natural, but the supernatural as well. A good investigator will look at all evidence, no matter how fantastic, and weigh it for its truth value. That's actually the true definition of being open-minded. It's not accepting everything as true, but being willing to look at all evidence to look for what is true. And it requires an honest look at possible alternatives which we're actually going to do in our next podcast that Trisha is going to head up. So I'm so excited. So Trisha, what are some, uh, what are some other tips? We, we actually kind of jumped ahead and, and said some of these throughout our podcast, but just to round this out, what yeah. are some fun tips that you have for parents to do with their kiddos, to do with their grandkids, to help bring history to life? Well, I know my little grandson who is about six is learning to read. And so whenever we see these little articles, we can find small articles online that are, are written in very down to earth language. And he loves picking out words that he knows. And so we can help them pick out the words in the article they know, even when they're four, five and six and, and find, find words and then show them the special word like Iophis and how that name is spelled funny. Just simple. Simple things like that that connect them and then have them write it out. That sounds like something that would be boring, but I know that my little five and six-year-old grandson, he loves to be able to write out a new word. So that's something for the little kids when they uh, don't fully understand the whole thing to get them to do to practice and to get a handle on words that are a little bit difficult. We can also uh, take them and show them specific pictures online. And if you have a printer, you can print them out. They can cut it out. Actually, with my 10th graders at uh, Christian High School, we made an archaeology book of all the supporting archaeological finds for the Bible. And each one of them was assigned 
uh, a specific archaeological find, such as the pilot inscription. They did the research on it. They put it. They did the research on it. Put it on, glued it on a page, typed up the basic things they learned about it, like uh, the very basics, such as the the date it was found and by whom, when it was dated to when it originally existed, what it was and its significance, and then anywhere it's mentioned in the Bible. And they put that all on a page, and each student in, in my 10th grade class uh, presented theirs to the class, and we added it. We had a huge notebook when we were done. And so as you go through biblical claims, if you start looking up archaeology online, you often will find an archaeological find that supports that claim. Begin your own notebook. And that might be a lot of fun. That's awesome. I, so I, I homeschooled my kids when we did the classical method. And I'm sure any moms who are familiar with the classical method, oh, that, that just ties right in. Mystery yeah. of history. Yeah, I love the idea of that book. That's fantastic. If you've also got kiddos who happen to like YouTube, I've got a great video that we found on accident. So the the creator is called, it's called the Infographic Show. So Infographic Show. And the title of the, and we'll put a link as well, but the title of it is called Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? Now it's 30 minutes long, but it's an animated evaluation of the claims that we're discussing, not only in this podcast, but in our next podcast. And as I watch this video, I'm like, okay, how, how is he going to handle this? Because before it's just been, uh, you know, a lot of history stuff, very neutral. And honestly, out of all the videos that I've seen regarding apologetics, this is probably in, in the top five. It is absolutely fantastic. It is well done. Uh, he presents information and there are times where he will make a suggestion or make a counterclaim. And I'm sitting there like, okay, wait, is he going to address it? And then later on in the video, he does. So it is absolutely fantastic. If you've got kids that love animated videos on YouTube, this one is so well done. It can be used with littles and it is also mature enough to be used with high schoolers to where it is just a great accessible way to evaluate the claims of the early historians, the evidence to see what is the most likely explanation for the death and resurrection of Jesus. So again, great resources, great craft projects, whatever you're doing with your kiddos. Again, we highly encourage you to uh, tag us on it on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. We love seeing what you're doing with your kiddos. We're going to put it out there. So we would love to be involved in your lives. Mamas and Papa Bears, we thank you so much for taking the time to come and learn and grow in our faith in Christ. And I just want to take a, a minute where I'm just going to pray for you right now so that way you can have some wonderful, fruitful conversations. Father God, we are so grateful to become together and to know you more. And we are grateful for the archaeological evidence and the historical evidence and the well-documented evidence for your death and resurrection. There are still challenges that we face today regarding your existence, your death on the cross, and you rising from the grave. But Lord, we have confidence through faith because you have shown yourself and made yourself known. And we are so grateful to that. I pray for the mamas and papa bears out there, the grandmama bears and grandpapa bears who are pouring life-giving water in their younger generation. I pray for their kiddos that you will open their eyes. Holy Spirit, I pray for you to work in their lives. And we are just grateful for every opportunity that you give us to come and know you more. In your holy name, Lord, amen. Well, mamas and papas, Trisha, thank you so much for being here. Folks, if you have enjoyed this, this podcast series, we got one more coming up and this one is awesome. I'm so excited because a few of these I didn't even know about. So we are actually going to look at arguments against the resurrection and alternative theories for what exactly happened to Jesus after his death. So you are not going to want to miss it. 
as we evaluate more evidence to the death and resurrection of Christ. So Trisha, thank you again. And mamas, we will see you next time. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.